There we go. Good morning, everybody. Uh, if we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name is Aaron. And if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning, continuing in our year-long plus, almost two years probably by the time we're through with it, going through the Old Testament. So we're in chapter 18 uh, this morning. And as you're turning there, I'd like to start with probably, I don't know if it's my favorite movie, but up there in the top three at least, uh, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins, this is the scene towards the end of The Return of the King. And it's at that moment where Frodo, is, he, he has nothing left in him. And he's so close to getting to, to the inside of Mount Doom to throw the ring into the fire and everything's going to be a happy ending after that. And Samwise has been this amazing friend to Frodo along the journey. He's been with him through the ups and downs, through all the different kind of areas where they have had to journey together through Middle Earth to get to this point. And Frodo, he like physically can't get any further at this scene in the movie. And it's this really, I think, I watched like the clip of it, and it kind of really got me jazzed up a bit. It's this really kind of powerful moment as far as friendship and, and kind of community goes in sort of movies, at least currently speaking. And Samwise has this line, because Frodo can't carry the ring any further, and Samwise says to Frodo, Frodo, or Mr. Baggins, I can't carry you, or I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And it's this beautiful, I think, scene of like friendship and loyalty and sticking together with someone even through difficult times. As we look at our text this morning, 1 Samuel 18, one thing we're going to see is probably one of the most iconic stories as far as friendship goes in Scripture, the story of David and Jonathan. And I'd like to just kind of frame this as looking at, okay, what does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to discuss, not only discuss, but also live into what it means to have friendship in a biblical sort of way? So with kind of all that in the back of our heads, let's dive into the text starting in verse 1 of chapter 18, the text says this, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, now just kind of pause right there because we're jumping like right into the middle of the story here. As soon as who finished speaking to Saul? Well, that's David. David was finishing speaking to Saul at the end of chapter 17. And if you're here last week, Tony taught on the story of David and Goliath. And in that story towards the end, Saul is kind of wondering, who is this little shepherd boy who slayed the giant? And so Saul and David begin to have this kind of reintroduction towards the end of chapter 17. So that's what we're referring to here in verse 1. Then the text goes on to say the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now just by way of reminder, remember Jonathan is Saul's son, which will be a very important detail as we progress through this story. And Jonathan loved him, that's David, as his own soul. soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Let's just kind of pause right there and take in what we just read there for a moment. Here we have, again, it's really important to remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. And as you've kind of been tracking with us through this story, we've come to this point where Saul has been told, you're no longer going to be king of Israel. The throne is no longer yours. The throne is going to be given to David. David, the shepherd boy who just kind of took down the giant Goliath. And so if you're Jonathan, Jonathan is supposed to be the one, if Saul is going to continue to be king, Jonathan is supposed to be the one that will become king someday. But look at what Jonathan does in this moment. 
He takes off his armor. He takes off his robe. He gives those over to David. And the text says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And the text says in verse 3, look, notice that language, that Jonathan made a what with David? A covenant. There's a good Bible word for you. A covenant with David. Now, I don't know about you. When I think about friendship and kind of hanging out with people, covenant's not like the first word that pops to mind, right? I often think of like covenant with like, you know, God and Israel and kind of God working throughout the biblical storyline. Like covenant, yeah, that makes sense. God showing and demonstrating loyal love to his people, love that will never break up, love that will never abandon someone. Loyalty and faithfulness to the max. Not, not, not a contract. See, a contract's like I sign on the dotted line, and as long as you meet my needs, then we're, we're good. But the moment you fail to meet my needs, the contract's voided. That's not what a covenant is. A covenant's this sign of loyalty and sticking it to and with someone, no matter what the cost, no matter what happens. And that same language is often used in marriage, right? A marriage covenant. But here, the text says in verse 3 of chapter 18 that a covenant was made between Jonathan and David. What a way to describe friendship. What a way to describe this relationship between Jonathan and David. And again, remember, if you're Jonathan, let's be honest. If you insert yourself as Jonathan in the story, if we're honest, how many of you might be a little bit jealous at this point? Wait a second. The throne was supposed to be mine. I was supposed to get that recognition. It's not my fault that my dad's just kind of going off the tracks here. But Jonathan shows this and demonstrates this loyalty, this camaraderie, this sense of friendship that I I think, if we're honest, goes beyond, I think, what most of us often think of when we think about friendship. Right? Oftentimes we think of friendship as like, oh, we're just kind of hanging out, we're together. But these signs of affection and loyalty and sticking it with someone no matter what, it's a beautiful thing. It reminds me of the story of Ruth and Naomi, right? When Ruth says to Naomi just a few books prior, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Again, it's this loyal covenantal love from the heart of God himself going out towards other people. But, but notice though, as the story continues, as you have on one hand this friendship building between David and Jonathan on one hand, what's happening with Saul over here? And it's not good. Take a look at the text in verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the woman sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and me only a a thousands. What more can he have done but the kingdom? And notice verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. What a contrast between Jonathan and Saul. Saul's in this, like, comparison mode, right? David, he's slain 10,000s. I've only slain 1,000. People aren't recognizing me. Look at David's beginning to get more of the attention. More of the the kingdom is kind of loving David more. 
And this kind of brings up something within Saul's own heart, this sense of jealousy, the sense of comparison. And what this leads to is on one hand, again, Jonathan's showing this loyal covenant love to David. It's the exact opposite with Saul. Saul begins to lash out. Saul begins to live from this place of fear. Take a look as the text goes on. Verse 10, the next day, a harmful or evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Now, let's pause right here because verse 10, if you, let's read it again. Like, did you notice what, what did we just read? The next day, an evil spirit came from God, rushed upon Saul. What in the world? Like, that's not very nice, right? What exactly are we talking about here? Now, let's give me like four minutes because I think we got to kind of drill down in this a little bit here, right? I'll give you the four-minute version here. Tony and I, we had a little kind of podcast conversation on this kind of idea on our cutting room floor. So if you want to get the more detailed version, it's on our website. We'd, you can look at that a little bit. But for this morning, when we're looking at this story of Saul and we're seeing this idea of, okay, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul— that seems like Saul's at a disadvantage there, right? It seems like the, the, the deck is stacked against Saul. That's not really fair. But it's important to recognize a couple things. First, let's talk about the word evil. And then second, let's talk about the broader storyline as, as far as Saul. So first, the word evil. In the, Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew language, the word evil is ra. And the word ra in Hebrew has, like, I think, a wider semantic range of meaning than how, how, than how we often think of the word evil. Here's what I mean. When we think of evil, we often kind of attribute that to like moral or philosophical evil. And so we might read a verse like this, that God, we might kind of interpret this as God is sending essentially like a demon to like torment Saul. Like a a malevolent being that is inherently evil within that being itself. And that, that being is being sent by God to now torment Saul. The thing is, is that the idea of evil in Hebrew, as when it's describing someone like this or something like this, can also talk about the effect that that thing has on that particular person. Meaning this, that when an evil spirit, as the text says, is being sent to Saul, what it could also be describing is the effect that that begins to now have on Saul himself. Does that that nuance make sense there? Because here's what we're talking about, is Saul, he's already on this path of disobedience. He's already on this path of rebelling. He's already on this path of increased jealousy. And his relationships and friendships are beginning to break down. And so what you then have is this kind of this idea. Remember back in the story of Exodus with Pharaoh? And how several times you would read throughout the ten plagues that the text would say something like, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you look at the broader storyline of that Exodus story, what you see is that the first kind of half of those times where the text describes Pharaoh's heart being hardened, it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart himself. And then after kind of the midway point, then the text transitions to now God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. And what's this story telling you there? That at that moment when that transition happens, that God is allowing Pharaoh to go down the path that he has already chosen for himself. That God is allowing Pharaoh to continue down that rebellious, jealous, self-destructive path that Pharaoh himself chose. And many people think something very similar is happening with Saul. That Saul is already down this relational path based off fear and jealousy and disobedience. 
that as this spirit is now being sent to Saul, it's already continuing the path that Saul has already started on himself. Now, there's a lot more we could say for that. Again, the more detailed version we have on our cutting room floor. But that, I think, is important just to kind of get that nuance just a little bit there. Because this isn't the only time that this is given to us in Scripture. Actually, two other times, three total, we're told that this happens to Saul. An evil spirit or a malevolent spirit is sent to Saul. But the big idea to take away at this point is this. Saul is already going down this path. Saul is already living in this fear-based economy. When something good happens to someone else, that is a threat to Saul. Saul's heart is already at that spot. And so as David's successes begin to increase, it just brings out the evil that's already there within Saul's heart. And notice at the end of verse 10, Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. I always read that story, this portion of the story, and go like, what in the world have that would have been like? Right? Like doing some like matrix thing or whatever, right? And Saul was afraid of David because, notice this, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Notice that modifier, fearful awe. Saul is living from this place of fear. Not only is it going to damage and hurt his relationship with his own son, as we'll see here in a moment, it's going to hurt and damage his relationship with his daughter, and obviously it's hurting his relationship with David, his son-in-law. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before him. Again, the obvious point so far is this. Saul is living from this place of fear. But this won't be the last time that the text in the next chapter or so describes Saul living from a place of fear. Just to briefly summarize the next story. Saul essentially comes up with this plan to what he's trying to do, as the story continues in chapter 18, is to find a way to get David killed, basically. And so Saul sets up kind of this ultimatum, so to speak, of, here, David, I will give you my daughter for marriage if you go and get me 100 Philistine foreskins. You basically kill 100 Philistines, my daughter is yours in marriage. And it's ba- all it really is, though, from Saul's perspective, is a setup. That there's no way this David can go get 100 Philistines. No way at all. But as you read the text as it goes on, what David ends up doing, David's like, you know what? 100? I'll double that. And he kills 200 Philistines, and, Saul and Saul's daughter and, and David are, get married. And then the jealousy only festers and continues and grows from Saul's point. And it's just this really tragic story. Because when you get to the verse 28, look at this. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Again, think about the trajectory that Saul is on. What started off was what, as being not this relationship that was enemies was actually a decent, healthy relationship. 
But because of the fear, because of the comparison, because of the, the, the like jealousy of David's getting all this attention, and David's getting all this success, and Saul living from this place of insecurity, how it's now just ruined all the relationships that Saul has. Meanwhile, remember the beginning of the story. Jonathan has the complete opposite reaction. When Jonathan, if you're talking about who would have every right to be upset, every right to wonder, why on earth am I not getting the throne? Jonathan is this picture of friendship, of sacrifice, of vulnerability, giving away what could easily be described as rightly his. And so as we kind of think about this story for our sort of everyday life, and think about how you know, an ancient story about kind of power plays and politics and friendship, how does that all speak into kind of our cultural moment and what we might be thinking about and dealing with in our own lives? A couple things come to mind. And the first one is this. Actually, I'll just give them to you both right now. The first, though, fear is fatal is the first one, and friendship is formative, the second one. Spend just a few minutes on each. The first one, fear is fatal. Again, Saul, living from this place of fear. And when I mean fatal, I mean it in two different, two different ways. The first way, fatal for one's own personal life. Living from a place of fear. And fear, not in like the healthy like fear of the Lord. That's not what we're talking about. This fear of like others having success. Others having things that you want or, or don't have. That's exactly where Saul is living from. Fear that power is going to be moving from himself over to David. And whenever someone lives from this place of wondering and worrying about, oh my goodness, what I had, what I thought was mine, and living from this place of control and insecurity, that begins to leak out and destroy relationships. I'm sure many of us have seen something like that before, whether in our broader culture or maybe in your own interpersonal lives. Because when people live from a place of insecurity, not being sure of who they are, not recognizing that life is a gift and the things that we've been given are gifts and not things that we can hoard onto ourselves. That begins to leak out in places of relational hurt and pain and damage. And David gets the brunt of it. As the story continues to progress, David's going to have to go on the run. David, for the most part, has moments of just upstanding character where he's given opportunities to actually kind of take Saul out, but David does not do that. But, again, the tragedy that is Saul, living from this place of comparison and insecurity. You know, I think it was actually President Roosevelt, the first one, that's attributed for saying comparison is the thief of joy. And I think that's so true in this story. Think about, again, Saul. David has slain 10,000s. I've only slain thousands in the comparison that Saul lives into. And think about for our own day. You know, with the advent of, in particular, social media, how easy it is to live in that world of comparison. That person has that. That person's life is X. Mine is not. And often we can do this. And I've noticed it in myself at times even with the people that I'm closest with, kind of in my own head. Oh my goodness, they have that. Their life seems this. And if we're not careful checking that within our own hearts, that can lead to resentment. And if that is not addressed over time, it does and will often, we see it often play out, can and does hurt relationships. 
And I just can't help but wonder if the invitation for us as followers of Jesus is to remind ourselves of not only who we are in Christ, but to recognize that the idea of comparison and living, especially in our imaged culture, is not a place that leads to fruitfulness and, and vitality and actual relationships that are built on true, deep friendship, but actually leads to these places of fatality, both interpersonally and individually within our own hearts. Because as the story continues for Saul, he ends up in this really, really dark place, isolated and alone. And maybe a little diagnostic for us to kind of think about. Are we able, kind of a question, are we really able to celebrate the good and the gifts and what we might seem as like, oh my goodness, they have that, or, or they might have this, or are we really able to celebrate the good things in other people's lives? Are we really able to celebrate the successes and what might, might seem like an amazing thing over here for that person? Are we honestly able to celebrate that? Because for Saul, he was not. David's success was a threat to him. And the moment we begin perhaps to see successes in other people's lives as a threat to our own lives, that might be a little bit of a warning for us. That might be like a little yellow light, maybe even a red light. That perhaps God wants to meet us in that and heal us and mend us and shape us so we don't go down this formation trajectory of living in this state of fear. Paul would say this to Timothy, for we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So I think by the power of the Spirit, God wants to bring healing in that, that we would not live from a place of fear and a place of anxiety, but we would live from this place of gratefulness, of open-handedness, of recognizing that life is a gift and that we are to celebrate the good things in other people's lives. This leads, though, to the second idea, though. Friendship is formative. Friendship is formative. Now, there's a lot we could say about friendship. There's a lot we could say about this whole idea. You know, one of my, you know, I mentioned Tolkien and Lord of the Rings at the beginning, but Tolkien was great friends with C.S. Lewis. And kind of, you know, their kind of history together and how they would always gather and kind of talk about what they were writing about. And, and C.S. Lewis wrote a ton about friendship. And one of my all-time favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is on friendship. And it's kind of not really well known, but C.S. Lewis says this. Friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. See, this idea of friendship, this idea of community and close relationships, if we're honest, can be a really difficult thing. It's not always easy. A few nights ago, my wife and I were watching This Is Us, one of our favorite shows, the only show I really, you know, like religiously watch. But in the most recent episode, Kevin, who's one of the main characters, he's in this scene where he's in the, in the hospital, don't worry, no spoilers. But he's in this, he's in the hospital caring for one of his friends. And if you know Kevin and his backstory, he's one that's just been a relational wrecking ball, not really able to keep friends over a long period of time. And he had this moment in the, in the scene there 
Or he's talking about the person who he's waiting for in the hospital. He's like, this is the only person I care about. And what he was getting at was that friendship was so and is so hard. The pain that friendship and that idea of friendship that often comes up is really difficult. And I can't help but wonder for some of us as we kind of think about friendship and think about community, what that might bring up as far as kind of pain and difficulty and just the reality that making friends and being friends over a long period of time can be really hard. You know, we can read a story with like David and Jonathan and go, oh my goodness, this is amazing, covenant love, and you know, my soul is like given over and giving you the armor, all that stuff, and it's great. But I also recognize that for many of us in this room, the idea of friendship, especially over a long period of time, might bring up some things that are difficult. That might bring up some old wounds, some relationships, some conversations that perhaps you wished went a different way. But I think the challenge, though, is this, is that especially in the American West and especially in a culture that is so individualistic, the temptation in the face of difficulty with friendship is to often retreat just to isolation, is to retreat to, I'm just going to do it by myself, and I'm not going to give myself over to working towards and building strong friendships and relationships. I'm just going to live and I'm just going to kind of maybe have some surface friendships but not really pour myself into friendship. And I would just say this, that just from the simple idea that we as human beings created the image of a triune God that is community, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect love, and created to know that God who is love, that process of growth and transformation is not something that can be done in isolation. That process of transformation to becoming a person of love is something that really only can be done in the context of relational connection. That's something that is grown deepest in close, intimate connection and friendship. That our relational nature as human being and our relational goal as becoming people of love is done through a relational process, most often within the church community, through deep, committed Friendship. Again, the story, David and Jonathan. A couple details, just remember about that text there in the first few verses. Remember when Jonathan kind of took off his armor, took off his robe, and he gave that over to David? On one level, I just wonder kind of what the symbolic kind of nature of that is. Kind of this vulnerability, taking off what's his and giving that over to David? There's a level of vulnerability that's at play. There's a level of sacrifice. Sacrificing what could rightly be described as Jonathan's and giving that over to David. And there's that level of commitment. That language of covenant in verse 3. Again, we often don't use that language to describe friendship. We kind of reserve that just for particular relationships or even like kind of biblical theological ideas. But it seems to me when you think about the idea of covenant and friendship, I can't help but wonder if that's something that we should reclaim as the church. And recognize what would it look like to have that level of committedness 
in deep friendship over a long period of time. Some of the people that I admire and respect the most, people in this church that are two, three, four decades, even more down the line. And I hear stories Stories when they tell about, I've known these people for 30, 40, 50 years. We've done birthdays together, vacations together. And to see how that has been so crucial and vital in their own transformation and their own personal growth. And it's inspiring. It, it, it helps me have this vision of this long view of discipleship, this long view of becoming a person of love, of, coming, of becoming a person more in the image of Jesus. That it's been because for a lot of, the, a lot of people, these long-term committed relationships with other people, going through difficult times, joyful times, and everything in between. And I can't help but wonder, perhaps that might be kind of an invitation for many of us. What would it look like to have that sort of vision? That vision that doesn't just look at tomorrow or the next day, but that vision that looks, you know, a decade or two or three down the road. What kind of community would we want to be, especially people my age and younger, that would say, what would it look like to have those close, committed connections? And to be the kinds of people that no matter what, we would have this kind of covenant language at play. This language of, I'm going to be there with you and for you no matter what happens. It's a beautiful thing to think about. It's a challenging thing to think about. But again, recognizing that, again, this is not always easy. You know, I think about just even this idea of how we grow, the formation trajectory that we're on. Saul, in his lack of friendship, so to speak, creates all this relational dysfunction because he's living from a place of fear. But David and Jonathan, what you begin to see as that story continues, is that friendship, this kind of togetherness, it creates this sense of community and belonging that is actually able to help David go through the difficult times. That's actually able to help David kind of work through all the difficulty, the relational dynamics, everything in between. And I can't help but wonder if we might, as not just like us, but just even as the American church, over the course of like living and just swimming in individualism, might have a lower view of friendship than I think the Bible would, would have us think about. Wesley Hill, who has an amazing book on friendship, says this. Without people to love and be loved by, I don't imagine faith is very sustainable. And I can't, again... There's so much here. There's so much to think about. Not only just think about, but to be challenged by in a good way. The gift that friendship is. It's one of those things that once you've tasted and experienced it, you don't want to let go of it. And it's also one of those things that if you've had hurt and pain and confusion within it, it does create this kind of, I don't know if I can go there again. I don't know if I want to take the risk to go that route again. And as we kind of land the plane a little bit here, I think one of the things that really comes to mind is understanding that in the midst of so much difficulty with friendship, 
and in the midst of so much kind of confusion about it. The beautiful invitation that is on offer as followers of Jesus when it comes to friendship. And in particular, the person of Jesus himself. You know, in the 1800s, about 1855 or so, kind of this beautiful hymn was written by Joseph Scriven, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And Joseph Scriven wrote that hymn for his mom to comfort her when he wasn't able to physically be with her. To remind her what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Jesus in John 15 would tell his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And he would go on to say, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And to understand that as followers of Jesus, to gather in this place, that what a friend we have in Jesus. Not to say like, okay, you have Jesus, you're fine, you don't need to have other human relations, but no. To understand that because of the person of Jesus, that friendship is possible. True friendship, true relational vitality and connection is possible through the person of Jesus. Greater love has known this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. You know, as the worship team comes up and as we kind of transition into a time of worship, we also wanted to take just a few moments as a church family, as a community, to remember that great love that Jesus, our friend, has given us through his sacrifice and through his death. You know, every couple weeks here at Wellspring, we want to remember the Lord's Supper and remember this idea that Jesus, our friend, has given himself for us. So in a few moments as the band plays, I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, there'll be some folks to my right and to left here, to come down this center aisle. And it's a way of saying that taking the Lord's Supper, taking communion is not just an individual thing. It's a communal, community thing as we come down together. And folks will be here to say the body of Jesus broken for you, the blood of Jesus shed for you. And again, in the midst of kind of all of the questions and all of the confusion that we might have with relationships and friendships, I think it's really important to remember the love and the care and the, the joy that we have in the person of Jesus. Recognizing that he has gone the distance for us. Recognizing that he has done what neither of us can do and in our, all our moments of failure, whether it's relationally or personally, all our moments of brokenness, that Jesus is there with us. That Jesus stands and sits and walks next to us in all of those moments of pain and brokenness. Again, that, that hymn that I, I, did, I love so many hymns, but that one in particular. What a friend we have in Jesus. That we can share our griefs and bear them to him 
what a privilege it is to carry those things and bring them to the Lord in prayer.